The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. What's cooking in your kitchen or at your backyard barbecue this weekend? It's my goal every Sunday to give you great ideas and inspiration for every kind of food. I'm all about living the best life. And so on this show, you'll hear chef's tips, a little bit of tech advice once in a while, all the wine knowledge you need and can definitely drink up. And I'll take you from professional kitchens to cookbook authors' homes to the sommelier's tasting rooms because I believe that food tells a story. So whether it's about your daily dinner or kitchen tips or even helpful chef's hints, I welcome you to sit down at your kitchen table and share and learn something new with me. You can always join your culinary comrades online as I'm serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, C-H-E-F-J-A-M-I-E.com. And you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen. In fact, speaking of the website. I am all fired up for the barbecue season and I have some new simple suggestions and grand grilling recipes of your dreams posted on the website. So I hope that you'll check it out and I do hope that you'll stay tuned as well. We have a terrific lineup of guests coming up. You can treat yourself as we're going to talk about the classic sweets you loved as a kid. We're making perfect punch cocktails later in the hour and we're dishing on the new newest term in the culinary world, flexitarianism. You'll want to hear all about it, so do stay tuned. I thought we'd kick off this Sunday show, though, with a conversation about the beauty of summer tomatoes. I love the bounty of summer produce in the farmer's market that's just brimming with beautiful color, and I believe that the summer months do offer the sweetest tomatoes. Now, botanically speaking, The tomato is a fruit, so is watermelon and green peppers and eggplant, cucumber, and squash. A fruit is actually categorized as any fleshy material covering a seed or seeds. Now, horticulturally speaking, the tomato is a vegetable plant, and it was in 1893 that the United States Supreme Court ruled that the tomato was a vegetable and therefore subject to import taxes. The suit was actually brought about by a consortium of growers who wanted to declare it a vegetable to protect U.S. crop development and prices. So tomatoes belong to the same family as the potato, the pepper, the eggplant, and they flourish during the summer months when the heat is on. Now, there are actually more than 7,500 tomato varieties grown around the world. And while the majority of tomato varieties are red, the unique varieties, often called heirlooms, can be found in green and yellow, orange and pink, black, brown, white, even purple. Now, I believe that an heirloom tomato offers you the best and far superior flavor than the store-bought counterparts. But what is an heirloom tomato, you ask? Well, we've all heard the term, but you might not know what it really means. And happily, I have a very easy definition. 
An heirloom tomato is a variety that has been passed down from gardener to gardener. And unlike the modern hybrid varieties, heirloom tomatoes come true from seed, which really proves the main reason that you choose heirloom varieties is the flavor. There's no one heirloom tomato taste. You'll find a wide range of flavors, which is really the best part about it for all of us food lovers. Because you can find the tomato that best pleases your palate and then perfect your signature recipes. But the beauty of an heirloom tomato is really that it's prized for having an old-time taste. They're a far cry from the tomatoes that might smell or taste like the hothouse they were grown in, those that you might find as the common tomato in your supermarket. Now, the most famous heirloom tomato, and one you should definitely look for, is called the Brandywine. And it's a classic strain that many food experts rank as the best-tasting tomato around. It actually features large red fruit, about two pounds each, and it dates back to the late 1800s. Now, I love a Brandywine, but I love a zebra, too. And there are so many delicious varieties, whether you're making fried tomatoes or an ultimate no-cooked tomato sauce. I have one, in fact, I'll share in just a moment with brie cheese that's brilliant. But remember, too, it's not too late to plant your own tomatoes this summer, especially if you're hopeful for a warm fall season. Or why not consider planting a salsa garden? I love this idea. If you love making fresh salsa at home, then you make your own salsa using the fresh ingredients from your planting plan. Essentially, you plant, let's say, a couple of varietals of tomatoes or even try tomatillos if you love salsa verde. You can plant a small variety of onion, fresh cilantro, maybe some sweet peppers to round out the sweet and spicy Latin flavor. And then you have salsa year round at your disposal. How great is that? But most importantly, how do you choose and store a great tomato? Well, the way that the fruit is handled will change its taste. So if you're growing tomatoes, be sure to allow them to mature completely before you pick them. Because picking tomatoes before they ripen cuts the fruit off from the plant's supply of sugar and the other nutrients, and it will not ripen off the vine or on the counter. Now, if you buy them at the farmer's market or the grocery store, look for the tomatoes that have the best aroma. You want to sniff them all and find the ones that really stand out to you. And then no matter whether you're growing them, if they're homegrown or even store-bought, do not refrigerate them. Putting tomatoes in the refrigerator when a tomato gets too cold, the flavor begins to evaporate and you lose all the beauty of that tomato. Now, when it comes to the best tomato recipes. I like to roast tomatoes in a a cast iron pan, let's say, on the grill, whether they're cherry tomatoes or even slices that you can grill directly on your barbecue grates uh, to make a simple spicy tomato sauce. You could always throw in a little bit of adobo sauce from a can of chipotles to top a steak or even lamb. Absolutely delicious. I love a grilled tomato bruschetta. You can use all kinds of vine-ripened tomatoes for this summer appetizer where you slice the tomatoes and grill them on the grates. Then you dice them and toss them with a little bit of balsamic vinegar, some roasted garlic, some red pepper flakes, good olive oil, fresh basil. And then you spoon that mixture onto crostini or toasted sliced 
French bread pieces. And you have a really beautiful bruschetta. And then, of course, it's the no-cooked tomato sauce that makes a culinary hero this summer. I think it's perfect for a weeknight meal because it comes together in 30 minutes. It's also a terrific vegetarian option. I've posted the recipe at chefjamie.com for my no-cooked tomato sauce. It's tomatoes and brie cheese, basil, garlic, and olive oil that marinates for about a half hour or an hour before you cook a pound of pasta toss it in and the hot pasta sort of melts the brie and warms the tomatoes to the perfect point where you pass the pepper mill and you have an incredible bowl of pasta for a summer meal. I'll post that quick recipe, by the way, on Facebook as well at Chef Jamie Gwen. So be sure to steal it. And then every Sunday, tune in because it's my goal to make you a better cook because you'll hear all about how you can think like a chef. This week's feature of Think Like a Chef, which is also repeated on the website, is all about the making of a vinaigrette. If you know how to make a proper vinaigrette, it is something that I will say can be made in seconds with pantry basics, but tastes so much better than the bottled kind. Now, the basic ratio for a vinaigrette is one part vinegar to three parts oil, but you can substitute less acidic ingredients for the vinegar if you like, like lemon juice, you can use grapefruit juice, your favorite citrus will work, or a combination of vinegar and citrus as well. And you always want to use the highest quality ingredients because basic vinaigrette recipes, in fact, have very few ingredients. Now, I've listed two ways. You can either make a vinaigrette by hand, or in my culinary opinion, you only need a finger because I like to make my vinaigrettes in the blender. And the secret is all about an emulsifier, Dijon mustard or a roasted garlic clove, or as some of my chef friends like to do, a tablespoon of heavy whipping cream will act as a binder for your vinaigrette. I've posted a simple method, a technique, of course, to give you the ultimate vinaigrette and the basic ingredients at chefjamie.com, along with a bunch of variations. So you can make a lemon parmesan dressing, a blue cheese, a balsamic, uh, a roasted garlic, and even a summer herb. So do check it out and let me know what you think. I'd love your feedback and I'd love to talk food with you. You can always email me directly at jamie at chefjamie.com. Now, speaking of the website, I've posted a summer pasta salad that is out of this world, highlighting the best of summer tomatoes and sun-dried tomatoes, in fact. So look for that. I have a frozen chocolate mousse pie from my friend, pastry chef aficionado Nick Malgieri. It is truly decadent and so rich and really easy to make. Plus, cheers to you. I've posted a summer daiquiri on ice. I like to ice my summer cocktails down for lighter, more refreshing drinks. So be sure to print it out and maybe pour yourself a glass and make a toast. Have you been to a Smart and Final store lately? My final question before we take a quick break. Well, it's better than ever, I have to say. They offer everything your supermarket does in terms of fresh produce, wine selection, high-quality dairy, uh, the best meats, everything from a club store with sizes large and small, and there's no membership required at Smart and Final. They also offer exclusive brands like the national brands that you know and love, and they guarantee theirs or your money back. Plus, their cashiers are quick. The 
The aisles at Smart and Final are big enough to get a couple of shopping carts through without hurting anybody. And for all of your summer celebrations and your weekly shopping needs, I hope you'll check it out. It is the all new and better than ever Smart and Final with specials on First Street chicken drumsticks or thighs, sweet cantaloupe melons, and pork loin back ribs going on all this week. Don't touch your dial because there's more delicious conversation coming up. She is Jennifer Steinhauer and she'll help you treat yourself. You can make that ding dong you knew and loved as a kid at home. She's created the recipes. Plus, he's Tony Abu Ghanem, the modern mixologist, and he's sharing his summer punch cocktails. Plus, Peter Burley is sharing the flexitarian table. His idea of cooking two meals at one for meat lovers and for the veggie lovers in your life. We're full of fabulous food right here in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and I'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. All right, listen here, because I'm going to make you hungry for more. Hostess cupcakes, ding-dongs, mint Milanos. I know, you're thinking the same thing I am. Cravings, right? Well, when her New York Times article on making homemade Twinkies went viral, Jennifer Steinhauer realized how big our nostalgia for classic snack foods was. And she found out, and I quote, that Americans of a certain age all believe that memory lane is paved in ho-hos. So she's written a cookbook that captures that nostalgia with recipes to honor and replicate the iconic snack foods that we love. It's called Treat Yourself, 70 Classic Snacks You Loved as a Kid and Still Today. And Jennifer is here to dish. I'm so glad to have you and to share your love for Mint Milano's. Oh, aren't those delicious? Yes, they are. <laughs> so good. And they're fun to make because you kind of squeeze them out instead of plopping them out like other cookies. I just love that cookie so much. I love the picture of you alongside the first page of your introduction holding a combination of true indulgence, I will say. And I'd love if you would give a little bit of history to your childhood in Kalamazoo and your addiction to junk food, if I could call it that. It's funny. My high school had a little store. We didn't have vending machines. We had a little store. I loved it so much I actually worked in that store for a, a marketing credit or something. And all we sold in there was just terrible stuff. Snack pies, the fruit pies, potato chips, Coca-Cola products, candy, you name it. And you would just stand there and, and sell that stuff during lunch. And that was basically lunch. Lunch was a honey bun. Lunch was barbecue potato chips. Mm. Lunch was Coca-Cola. And, and we all did it. And now I try to remember that when I go into my 15-year-old's room and I see hot stuffed Cheetos under the bed and I just want to, you know, just, just pull my hair out. I try to remember that that's kind of part of childhood is eating a lot of that junky food. And it was kind of comforting and fun. That it was. And today you're making your own Cheetos, which I can't I wait to try, by the way. Yes. Um, they're, I like, not too, they're not difficult. No, not hard, as you say. I'd like to, before we get into the replication of Thin Mints and Nutter Butters, at least mention that we all have a sweet tooth, a salty addiction, a dessert indulgence. And if you're going to eat it, as you say, you might as well make it yourself. It is a bit healthier than eating the shelf-stabilized, as you call them, chemically festooned commercial snacks, right? It is. I mean, I'm not going to try to pass this off as health food. <laughs> it's not. It's dessert. It's potato chips. But... 
I think that it is, um, first of all, I think it tastes better than a store-bought, even when it tastes authentic. I think mm-hmm. it tastes better, and I do think it's nice to not have the stabilizers. It doesn't mean, it means your homemade Twinkies are probably going to last a day and not um, 10 years, but That's okay. it is going to be delicious. Right. And I think that, you know, if you like to bake, then baking novelties is fun. If you're not a crazy lover of baking, you're a cook or you don't even like to cook it, some of these are very simple projects. I uh, put my 10-year-old on some of these, and she did them. I had teenage cooking assistants that sometimes they could turn out these zebra cakes. The vast majority of these recipes are not that difficult, and they're perfectly uh, adaptable for the beginning baker and kids. And they're so much fun, like you say. I mean, I found tremendous joy in just reading through the book, Jennifer. So let's treat ourselves. And if you would, give us a little bit of history. Um, I have a Thin Mint addiction, and I'm right. proud to disclose it here on this show. And I am uh, among those, as you speak about when you share the recipe for recreating thin mints, that has plowed through an entire sleeve of Girl Scout cookies. And yes, standing up at the freezer, because there's no calories when you stand up, right? Exactly. They yeah. fall right out. <laughs> and it is a funny thing about thin mints, isn't it? I, I can eat one chocolate chip cookie. I can eat one or two Nutter Butters, probably not one, two. But there's something that makes you want to keep going in those Thin Mints. Those are the Girl Scouts' most popular cookie, and by a pretty wide margin. Mm. So everybody seems to love the Thin Mint because it speaks to the chocolate lover, it speaks to the mint lover, it's got that nice little snap to it, it's got it's a nice size. I like that feeling when it's frozen and you put it in your mouth and you kind of feel the cool of the mint and, yes. the, and the temperature kind of together. It's, mm. it's tactically, there's something very pleasurable about that cookie. It's just an iconic, delicious cookie. And I would add, once again, not that difficult to make in your kitchen. No, that's what I love, the simplicity of of a chocolate cookie, Dutch processed cocoa powder and the basics of baking with a little bit of peppermint extract, which I usually find a little goes a long way, sort of uh, the same as, as almond extract or rose water. You're using a significant amount, which I think does give you that minty burst. And then a, a simple chocolate coating as well. Um, Nutter butters, first introduced in the 1960s, as you talk about. For any peanut butter lover, this is the ultimate cookie. It really is. Um I sometimes refer to that as the dad cookie. My dad's cookie was the windmill cookie, which is also in the cookbook. But the peanut butter, that that, that um, nutter butter, I think something about that kind of reminds people of their dad or their grandpa or something. Or something I don't know why. Uh, it's a great cookie to dip in a coffee. It's obviously a great match for a milk. Um, it's one of those um, characters, too, Mr. Mr. Peanut Butter, whatever he was, Mr. Nutter, who was also sort of iconic advertising uh character. Yes. Yeah, no, and he definitely conjures up memories and images of television and uh, and packaging, as does the Drake coffee cake. So immortalized in a Seinfeld episode, as you speak about it, there is something outrageous about the moisture content of a Drake's coffee cake to me. And for those that don't know, please enlighten us. It's funny. Now, Drake's is one of those snack food brands that's quite regional. I think a lot of brands now are more available across the country, although some things are still do remain, some products and some companies still remain mostly regional. Mm-hmm. But if you grew up in certain places, you never even heard of Drake's, you know, sure. never heard of Little Debbie. Some people knew Hostess, but they didn't really have as much access to it because they were really Little Debbie fans. And that Drake's coffee cake, there's something about that, that crunch of that top. It's very sweet. Mm. The crunch, the topping almost overtakes the cake, but then you do have this sort of delicate, nice sort of soury little cake underneath. And, you know, it's 
one, those things. Like, remember how we, that period where we convinced ourselves that muffins weren't cake, you know? Yeah. Just think about a, a coffee cake that's that way, too. It's yeah. not cake, it's coffee cake. That's right. You, <laughs> can, <laughs> you can rationalize anything in the morning, as far as I'm concerned. We only yeah. want the best part. And Drake's was mini enough that you could rationalize eating another. There are cracker loyalists, as you say. I thought that was so fabulous to read. And your household has no exception. I grew up in a household that was Ritz cracker loyal and still is today. And you recreated the Ritz cracker. I have to tell you, it's the first recipe I plan to make from the book. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was a hard one to master because that's the, the Ritz. It's got that buttery thing. Yeah, you know, definitely salty too. It's mm. got that that interesting texture. It's, it's very savory. Like, very savory. It is, and I, the, the dough is almost. You'll see when you make it. It's almost like a bread dough in a way, kind of stretchy. It's a funny. It's a funny thing to recreate, um, but it's tasty. And it holds the cheese nicely. <laughs> okay, will you share that recipe? Because I can't wait to post it and spread the word. Yes. Of that, the book. Yes, that's for sure. Thank you. Okay, so we're posting it at chefjamie.com so you too can treat yourself. A couple more classic snacks. Uh, there is tremendous pleasure that comes from a strip of paper and colored candy dots. And yes. I have to agree with you. They have no flavor at all. None. But what an exciting culinary venture to make your own. I love it. That's, that is something that if you, um, it's fun for everybody. It is a great kid project. Here we are in the middle of summer. Right. You know, maybe your kids have a day where they have nothing to do. Perfect. All you need to do, it, you don't need special equipment for this. You just take a Ziploc bag and you just snip that corner a little bit, you know, and that's your piping bag. That's all you need. You need some, um, you know, some powdered sugar. Couple cups of powdered sugar. Couple cups of powdered sugar. And you just um, get that mixed up, and some food coloring, obviously. And you know they have such fun, such different fun colors now that you can do those gel food colorings, or you can just use the standard things and make make your colors. You could do red, white, and blue for the Fourth of July. You know, mm-hmm. if you're having a theme and you want to do the colors from that, and you pipe a few out, and you'll and you know, the one thing you want to do, you want to kind of give it a twist so that you don't get a tip, so that you get a nice flat top the way they really, you know, looked at the at the fair or the candy store where you got them. That's the only trick, kind of to give the arm a little twist as you turn it and just pipe those guys out. And I'm telling you, kids can do it. It's just a fun little activity, and they dry in the paper beautifully. And then I don't, you know, I don't even care if you eat them. They're just fun to look at. I was going to say, you they're know? just fun to make. Uh, two cups of powdered sugar, if I may recap, one large egg white and three tablespoons of water combined on high speed in your electric mixer for about five minutes and then separated and colored and then spooned into that quasi pastry bag. I love a Ziploc bag as a substitute for a pastry bag and candy, candy dots can uh, be yours. Whether you peel the top off your hostess cupcake or you pull apart your Oreos, I guarantee you will relish this wonderful compilation of recipes so that you can make your favorite treats from scratch at home. It's called Treat Yourself, and it is 70 classic snacks that you loved as a kid and still love today. The author, Jennifer Steinhauer, S-T-E-I-N-H-A-U-E-R. If you go to chefjamie.com, you'll find the excerpted recipe from the book, Treat Yourself, and a direct link to Amazon to bring the cookbook into your kitchen. Jennifer, congratulations, and thank you. You definitely made my mouth water. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. It was a pleasure. Thank you. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Don't go away. 
Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are sipping in style today because the modern mixologist is here. We've seen the evolution of table service, but instead of investing in bottles of vodka and tequila and letting your friends pour their own drinks at your next summer shindig, why not create a party punch? It's a cost-effective way to quench the thirst of a crowd, and our resident mixologist, Tony Abu Ghanem, says that a crafty punch is something cool that heightens the communal drinking element. I love that concept. And so he's here to pour you a glass and share his best creations. Tony Abu Ghanem has authored Vodka Distilled and The Modern Mixologist Book of Drinks Contemporary Classic Cocktails. He is a much beloved national expert when it comes to creating cocktail menus. And he is no doubt on the cutting edge when it comes to cocktail and spirit trends. He joins us live once again, and I'm so glad to have you back, Tony. Welcome. As always, great to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, talk to us about punch, because there was an article, in fact, online where you were quoted as saying that punch is cool, like it's all the rage. And I love the idea of approaching punch from that perspective, that we can elevate it and create something sort of new and fresh and fabulous. You're absolutely right, Jamie. And especially in July when the weather heats up, it's the perfect drink for entertaining and for so many reasons. And we talk about punch, Jamie. we got to be clear. We're not going back to the college days when we'd fill up a trash can with Kool-Aid and Everclear <laughs> and canned fruit. No. No, not that kind. <laughs> no. And we're, and we're not going to, like our mom might have done with the, you know, the lime sherbet and some cheap sparkling wine. We're not talking about that either. Okay, good. We're talking about a sophisticated, classic approach to drink making that there we go. predates cocktails. That predates most of the beverages that we drink today. Uh, punch, you know, coming from the Hindi five or five ingredients is something that can be made up in advance. It can be made seasonally. It really becomes the centerpiece. And you said it in the introduction, communal. Yes. It's about that communal drinking experience where the punch bowl sat on a table, decorated, becomes that kind of social meeting place where people bring their punch cups back to refill and maybe there's a stranger there they haven't met before or a, or a friend or a conversation breaks out over a cup of punch. Yeah, and I love that communal concept. I love that it acts as a centerpiece, and it can literally be the centerpiece of your buffet. It can adorn your backyard patio table. I mean, there's really wonderful ways to make it the center of conversation, and there are wonderful ways to create a signature punch as well. I think that every great foodie household should have a house red and a house white, right? You should have wines that you know that are your go-to, that you keep, whether you have a cellar or in your sweater, uh, you know, the the downstairs closet um, that you can keep cool, but that you know are food friendly. And I think we should all make this summer the summer of punch, where you create a signature punch that is distinctly yours, that everyone comes back for more, that everyone's begging for the recipe. And they can be vodka punches or rum punches or even classic gin punches, as you've taught me. And I'd love to talk about those three different uh, spirits to start as the base of a punch. A great place to start is to go back in history, like we love to do, uh, and, and look at some of the classic punches. Probably one of the most famous is a punch that was created 
1732 in Philadelphia, and it's called the Fish House Punch. It follows that basic punch recipe. Punch comes from the Hindi word for five, meaning five ingredients. Mm. So we have sugar, water, we have lemon juice because we need citrus, and then we have Jamaican amber rum, cognac, and peach brandy. Mm. Real simple, but again, following those five uh, ingredients, water, sugar, citrus, spirit, and spice. And we can always use that as a template, right? I mean, that's, that's really your method without oftentimes the need for a recipe done to your taste, to your palate. Like mastering the mother sauces in cooking. Exactly. Once you have that template, then you can have fun and fill in with ingredients that you have or ingredients that are in season um, and just have fun and create your own classic punch, your own unique twist on a, a punch. But you need to have that, as we always talk about on your show, balance. Right. It, it needs to be balanced. And the other great thing about punch, Jamie, is it is and should be made in advance. Most of it can be made the night before. Let it sit. Let it come together. Let it get cold. So all you have to do is pour it into that beautiful punch bowl, garnish, decorate, big block of ice, and then you let your guests help themselves so you're not spent the entire party in the kitchen individually making drinks. Right, shaking one cocktail at a time. I love the make-ahead aspect of it. I like the idea of making even a double or a triple batch and separating it or breaking it down into a few different pitchers that stay cool in the fridge, and then you fill the punch bowl as needed so that the punch does stay cold all throughout the party, or that you always have a backup. There's a brilliant make-ahead aspect to it, and I like that. We've posted a recipe, by the way, because if you just tuned in, you're late. Tony Abuganum is here. The modern mixologist is dishing on summer punches. And we've posted a recipe for your sunset punch at chefjamie.com with a direct link to themodernmixologist.com. And I notice in it, when you talk about the five basic ingredients that in place of traditional granulated sugar, we've elevated to simple syrup. And I believe that simple syrup has its place in almost everything liquid or viscous today because of its ability to dissolve. And I know you feel the same way because we've spent a lot of time dishing on cocktails and I've read all the books, but there is definitely a benefit to creating a punch using a simple syrup. Are you using a two-to-one ratio is the question. I find a two-to-one to be just a bit sweet. Okay. Because if you notice that recipe, it also includes orange carousel. Right. So the sweetener, the sweet element can come from sugar, from simple syrup, from falernum, from honey, but it can also come in part from liqueurs. So You need to I consider with, the sugar content. Exactly. And I just want to touch on a great tip that you just gave about keeping it in the refrigerator. Ice will keep a cold punch cold, but will over-dilute a warm punch. So always chill your punch before go. putting it into the punch bowl over ice. That's a great tip. What is your basic ratio for simple syrup then, Tony? Remind us. I always go equal parts sugar to water okay. and measure it out. So two cups of sugar, two cups of water. I bring the water to a boil, let it cool the room temperature. That percentage will give me three cups of one-to-one simple syrup. And now I know that my sweetness is always going to be the same because sugar 
as you just said, does not dissolve well in cold and it does not dissolve well in alcohol. Right. So by making a simple syrup, you you guarantee that consistency and always the same amount of sweetness. And the other thing that's really fun is you can flavor your simple syrup when you make it. Okay, leave us with this. There is such a trend, and it, it's continued, and maybe not so surprisingly, but I think it's here to stay, with iced tea and lemonade and what we know and love as an Arnold Palmer, right? And I was mm-hmm. thinking about the Arnold Palmer prior to our punch conversation, and I thought, uh, who better to ask than the concept of incorporating America's love for iced tea and lemonade into your signature summer punch. Tea goes back hundreds of years, and actually in that definition for punch, the five ingredients, it states either water or tea. And water, you know, again, going back that far, we didn't have ice, at least not commercial ice harvesting. So, and the water was not often that good, so they would make tea, so tea was quite often used in punch. You take a drink from my first book, and a drink I know you love, hmm. uh, Bayou Zinger. Yes, uh, I do love that one. You know, I use fresh lemonade, and, and I, I use tea in that. I use the red uh, Zinger tea, uh, and it's, a, it's just beautiful. And there's a recipe that could be multiplied and made into a punch because you have all the components of a punch in a single-serving drink. So you would just multiply that and make it into a punch. Oh, brilliant. I love it. I I think that sounds so cool and refreshing. And you've successfully made me thirsty. So you've done done your job. Uh, We love that you shared a recipe, and thank you as always. I will encourage all the crafty mixologists and home brewers and those that love to add a little spirit to their backyard barbecues to visit themodernmixologist.com, themodernmixologist.com. You can learn more about Tony, certainly regarded as one of the most extraordinarily leading bar professionals, but one of the greatest pioneers in the cocktail world today. You can order your bar tools. Um, you could learn a thing or two, themodernmixologist.com. And be sure to check out chefjamie.com. We've excerpted the perfect summer sunset punch recipe from Tony. Rum and orange curacao, lime juice, orange juice, simple syrup, and a splash of bitters. I'm in, Tony. I'll be right over. Bring your bathing suit. Uh, I'll get the barbecue fired up and the punch bowl out, and we'll have a beautiful time. Sounds good to me. I can't wait. Author of The Modern Mixologist and Vodka Distillity is Tony Abuganum. And stay tuned because we hope to hear more from him this summer. Tony, always a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion and cheers. It's always a pleasure being on the show and enjoy the summer. And uh, look forward to our next glass of punch together. Yes, as I do as well. There's more thirst-quenching conversation in your radio right after this. Don't go away. If you're flavor-obsessed, then you're in the right place. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio Today, we're finding a common ground. It's called flexitarianism. And the recent paperback release of the best-selling cookbook by Peter Burley called The Flexitarian Table is making flexitarianism a buzzword again in the food world. You've heard Peter on this show before. He didn't coin the term, but since publishing his veg-friendly cookbook, The Flexitarian Table, in 2007, he's been spreading the gospel. 
Peter has made a career of cooking and writing about plant-based foods. He helmed the burners at vegan restaurants, and you can now find him at his North Fork Kitchen and Garden on Long Island, where he teaches gardening and cooking workshops and classes. Peter grew up in New York City, surrounded by great cooks. He watched Julia Child on television and actually attended the Berklee School of Music in Boston with the intention of pursuing a music career. However, the cooking genes won him over in the end. I'm so delighted he's back, a James Beard and IACP Award winner, joining us live to dish on summer flexitarian dishes. Welcome back, Peter. How are you? I'm fine, Jamie. Thanks for having me back on your show. Yes, of course. Okay, define for us once again a flexitarian because you talk about convertible meals, and I love this concept, and I think it very much applies, by the way, to the backyard barbecue. Well, for me, a flexitarian is either someone who eats a plant-based diet but is open and flexible to cooking animal foods for those who eat them or someone who uh, is an omnivore um, you know, eats meat, uh, fish and fowl, as well as vegetables and grains, but is adept and happy to cook plant-based meals for those who aren't omnivores. And, and to me, that's really the spirit of it. It's not a specific diet at all. It's more like an attitude and an approach to uh, nourishing the people we love and care for. Mm. And I love, um, I love that. For approach. many of us, we just have different dietary needs. I like the approach of convertible meals, as I mentioned, because that's what you call them. It's the same dish that can be prepared simultaneously without extra trouble, right? So speaking of summer menus, if we dig into the book, I love the idea of kebabs uh, on your menus because they include a charmoula lamb and then tempeh for those who are not omnivores or eating in a vegan style. Talk to us, if you would, about how to please both palates. I discovered that Plant proteins and animal proteins can be treated in similar fashion uh, through marinades and rubs and things like that. So um, here is an example of uh, uh, charmoula, which is a traditional Moroccan marinade. Um, Traditionally, it's used for vegetables and fish mainly, but it's great with, gosh, you know, a charmoula can can be done with lamb, it can be done with chicken, it can be done even with steak. But it's a fantastic, very vibrant herb and citrus puree with some spices in it, and you can marinate. Tempeh is a great thing to marinate it because tempeh has a firm texture. It's fermented soybean cake that originated in Indonesia. It's a wonderful way to consume soy because it's a cultured product, and the texture of tempeh is dry and dense. So if you marinate it, it will take on the flavor and characteristics of the marinade beautifully, Mm. and it performs really well on the grill. So I love tempeh for that reason. I love the idea that you serve it alongside a couscous with dried fruit and pine nuts. I happen to love couscous. I think that it absorbs flavor fabulously, and it's a great make-ahead side dish for backyard barbecues, for summer picnics as well. And I love the idea of the, the kebabs over the couscous. And then, of course, you're savoring summer corn. I can't wait to make your fresh corn polenta with the sautéed cherry tomatoes. That looks so good. Yeah, I mean, it's a simple dish. It's a simple backdrop that could be for something like white beans that are braised or sautéed seafood, scallops, shrimp, anything like that would be great. I love combining polenta dry meal and and fresh corn. They cook well together, and especially corn grits, which are, you know, really nutritious way to take in dried corn because the outer hull, which 
kind of has phytates which bind up niacin and so forth and prevent B vitamins from being absorbed is stripped away. So it's kind of like the whole masa process right. uh, that's used for tortillas. But grits cook very quickly, and of course fresh corn cooks quickly, so you can just strip the kernels off of cobs of corn and cook them together with the dried grits, form a polenta, which then you can either serve soft or you can let it dry and slice and put it on the grill uh, or saute it. Yeah, it's really nice. And, and uh, sauteed ch- uh, cherry tomatoes are great because they require no prep. I mean, you don't have to feed them. You don't have to peel them. I used to do this uh, many years ago. For I, It's become quite popular in recent years. But cherry tomatoes um, are wonderful for um, sauteing quickly or roasting in the oven. Uh, they can form a really nice sauce in a matter of minutes. Combine them with some fresh herbs, a little white wine, some olive oil, Um very difficult to screw up. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely so. I like to put a saute pan right on the grill, Peter, and I'll do my cherry tomatoes as a topping for a, a big hearty steak. But you could oh, do yeah. the same for a tempeh steak or if you were taking the vegan yeah. approach as well. And they blister from the high heat of the grill. And because of their high water content, the water evaporates from the heat as well. So you really get this sort of condensed, compounded sweet, delicious tomato flavor. Uh, and I yeah. can't I can't wait to make the polenta, as I said, so that will be on my summer menu. And then leave us with this, because at North Fork Kitchen and Garden, you have a bountiful garden, I know, that I can't wait to come and see. And I would think that you are pickling and preserving at this point during summer, right? Yeah, I am. For me, what's really exciting is I plant crops that I can preserve as much as possible, and I plant crops that you can continue to cultivate into the winter. So, because I want to get as much use out of my garden as possible. So, one of my first crops that I planted were wax beans, which are a beautiful bean to pickle because they maintain their, their yellow, you know, golden yellow color. I had such a huge bumper crop, so I just did some wild fermentation on them the last couple of weeks, uh, nice. just using a pickle brine of salt and garlic and some chili. And I had lots of dill flower tops, so I crammed in a lot of dill flowers, and I just finished um, giving them a brine bath for 10 days, and now they're ready. They're done, and they'll preserve Beautiful. right through next spring. Okay, so refrigerated. will you put some up so that I can come and taste? Yeah, oh, I have say? them up. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> when you come here, they'll be here. I I've can't got plenty. wait. I've got plenty to last all winter, and I just pickled my fennel crop. I did a sweet and sour <gasps> uh, fennel crop with mustard seed and uh, like a, you know, a vinegar pickle oh. uh, with some sugar and... Um, Lots of fennel tops. Okay, I'm in. I'm a fennel lover. Oh, agrodolce, as I call it in the Italian style, right? Oh, my favorite. Agrodolce. Love it. Okay, I'll be right there. Uh, We love the book, and I hope that you'll come back and continue to share your passion and um, your really, I think, such evolved recipes. Peter Burley brings meat eaters and meat freers together at last. You can find excerpted recipes from the Flexitarian table posted at chefjamie.com. And you can learn more. And if you're going to be in the New York area, consider taking classes from Peter at his North Fork Kitchen and Garden. Learn more at Peter Burley, B-E-R-L-E-Y.com. Peter, always a pleasure. A very happy summer to you. We'll talk to you next season. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I'm sure by now you're a culinary genius, and I hope that I've shared some delicious wisdom and inspiration with you. I'm 
always serving up seconds where culinary information abounds at chefjamie.com. And for the no-cooked tomato sauce recipe with the brie cheese that everybody's calling about, I've posted it on my Facebook page at Chef Jamie Gwen. I will leave you with this, though, before I go. I like to call this last segment my last bite, my last ounce of gastronomic information. And we have President Ronald Reagan to thank because in 1984, he designated July as National Ice Cream Month. And it's the third Sunday of the month that is National Ice Cream Day. So today we thank you, President Reagan. This is so my kind of holiday, too. I thought I would celebrate as I usually share my last bite as a three ingredient recipe. But this one's a bonus. It has only two. It is unbelievably easy to recreate what we all know and love as magic shell. That is the bottle of chocolate syrup, kind of, sort of, that when it hardens becomes that delicious shell that you know and love, of course, from your Dairy Queen ice cream cone or from the bottle that you had to shake before you poured over your ice cream bowl growing up. Well, I like to make it myself because I can determine the quality of chocolate and because I always have coconut oil in my pantry basics. Because, of course, of the trend of coconut oil and its high smoking point, I love to use it in so many different aspects of my cooking. Well, the basic do-it-yourself magic shell recipe is one and a quarter cups of chocolate chips or chopped chocolate and a half a cup of coconut oil, which you'll measure when it's still solid from the jar. All you do is combine the two and melt them in the microwave on 50% heat, just like you would melt chocolate in 30 second increments. Allow it to rest for a few seconds before you stir and start again. Once it's completely smooth, it will be runny. You want to pour it into a clear, clean plastic bottle and then use it as you like. You can always store it in the refrigerator, by the way. It will last throughout the summer, although it doesn't last very long. And to serve it, you just heat it again for about 30 seconds until it's liquid. When you pour it over your favorite ice cream in just a few seconds, it's magic. Yes, you get a magic shell topping. I'll post that recipe on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen as well. But I will ask that you tune in next Sunday right here in your radio for more scrumptious inspiration. I'll meet you at chefjamie.com. Until then, I thank you for listening and I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.